The oceans generate at least half the oxygen we breathe. They feed billions of people and support hundreds of thousands of livelihoods, hauling that food up from the deep and bringing it to the dinner table. They also absorb a big share of the world's carbon emissions and about 90% of the excess heat resulting from human-caused global warming. How are these changes affecting Pacific Northwest salmon and the endangered resident killer whales that eat them? Welcome to the latest edition of Changing Waters, a podcast from the Global Ocean Health Program at the National Fisheries Conservation Center in Seattle, produced in association with the American Shoreline Podcast Network. I'm Brad Warren, co-host of the show, and today I want to introduce you to our correspondent, Julia Sanders. To find out what scientists are learning about climate-induced changes in the marine food web, Julia interviewed NOAA researcher Lori Whitecamp, who has spent years looking at the effects on salmon and other fish. Here they are. Worldwide hearts were captured uh, last summer when a grieving orca mother carried her dead calf uh, over a thousand miles in at least 17 days. Uh, An unprecedented act of grieving, and it drew a lot of attention to the fact that southern resident orcas here in Puget Sound waters are under threat. And um, the governor ordered a task force to investigate this. And many scientists like yourself have been uh, digging into exactly what factors might be leading to this uh, disturbing decline in our beloved orcas. Uh, Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do? So I'm a salmon biologist. I work on the ocean uh, ecology of Pacific salmon. And because I'm here in Oregon and used to be up in Seattle, most of my focus has been on Chinook and coho salmon. So trying to understand where salmon are out in the ocean. And obviously this pertains hugely to killer whales because I've been looking at their prey, where where their prey are distributed. Right. And for those that don't know, Chinook are uh, almost entirely what uh, southern resident killer whales rely on as their sole source of prey. So without an abundance of Chinook, uh, essentially in the hundreds of thousands, uh, scientists estimate over half a million uh, may be needed just to, to feed the current population of around 70 adults. So it's very important and a, and a huge link to uh, orca survival to uh, to have enough of the, our uh, king salmon, also known as Chinook. So um, I know you've studied what's been going on uh, and our ocean is changing in many ways, uh, particularly since uh, it started heating up around 2013. Would you care to elaborate on, on that and what you've seen? Yeah, so we've we've definitely seen uh, very warm water ever since essentially the blob, which started in kind of the fall of 2013. Uh, we were having weather a lot like actually what we're, we've been having for the last three weeks, which is uh, not a lot of storms at a time of year when we do normally get a lot of storms. This prevents mixing of the ocean. So it, it instead of cooling off, which is what the storms do, they cool the ocean because they're mixing it and a lot of heat gets transferred to the surface. Uh, those got blocked by high pressure, which makes it sunny here, uh, much like we've been having. And uh, so the war, the ocean started heating up and remained hot. It, it cooled off a bit. Uh, last year in the winter, and, and I should say every winter, there's there's been a little bit more normal storms and it kind of cools off. But 
there's just been a huge amount of heat and they had record breaking heat and temperatures in terrestrial environments in Alaska this past winter, or excuse me, past summer. And it's the, the ocean is hot again. Uh, so we're seeing huge, huge biological effects of warm water all the way across the North Pacific. Uh, everything from uh, a bloom of a diatom called Pseudonychia, which causes domoic acid uh, as a byproduct of its metabolism. This causes amnesiac shellfish poisoning, and it has closed crab and razor clam fisheries along the coast. Uh, ever since 2015, more or less, they just now, in the last two weeks, closed the razor clam fishery on the Oregon coast, South, South Oregon coast, because again, domoic acid is too high. It's a, a very significant human health, health concern, uh, but we're seeing it in, in pretty much all levels of the, the food web from diatoms all the way up to uh, marine mammals, changes in the behavior of hotback whales, for example. Uh, there's been seabird die-offs. Uh, we're seeing unprecedented uh, abundances of things like squid up here uh, in, in Oregon, off the Washington coast, and where they're normally supposed to be further south. So uh, really massive effects, including salmon, of this, this extended marine heat wave we've been having. Thank you. Yeah, to elaborate a little bit more on the harmful algal bloom and the pseudonychia that you were referring to, um, for many Oregon and Washington coastal towns, uh, razor clam digging is an incredibly important part of their economy, along with, with Dungeness crab, of course. But uh, here in Washington, I know uh, coastal economies can't survive without the tourism that razor clamming brings. Uh, for example, in 2014, I believe there were over 450,000 individual razor clam digging licenses sold. And each of those visitors, you know, spends hundreds of dollars each time. So um, each time that there's a razor clam closure, particularly uh, when it's an extended one due to uh, demoic acid, it can really cost these uh, coastal towns businesses um to, to close, never to return. Yeah, and and here in I, I live in Newport, Oregon, and and we have a big crab fleet that goes out and fishes Dungeness crab, and uh, they they've really had a hard time the last couple of years because it's they close it down. Yep, and in fact, um, a lawsuit has been filed on behalf of a, a large group of Dungeness commercial crab uh, crabbers uh, against the fossil fuel industry. Uh, claiming, <laughs> which is a bit of a reach um, yeah. to, to expect a, a win, but at least it brings some publicity to the fact that uh, that perhaps uh, carbon emissions might be responsible for some of this unprecedented warming. And it's not just warming of the ocean, but of the land as well. As you mentioned, we've had some of the, the hottest years ever recorded since we began recording uh, temperature uh, and so it's really quite frightening. Um, but I, let's talk a little bit about the food web chain that leads all the way from the bottom uh, to the top. Uh, so I understand that uh, with southern resident killer whales, we have um, the salmon that is their prey. And uh, when they're juveniles, they rely on forage fish. And the forage fish rely on... Um, copepods and, and zooplankton. So uh, can you tell us a little bit more about how that all works and how it's been affected? 
Yeah, so we've seen some really dramatic changes in the kind of what we call lower trophic levels. So zooplankton, these tiny little creatures that you really can't see with the naked eye. You really need a microscope to see them. Uh, one of my colleagues that spent his essentially his entire career studying them here on the Oregon coast and found that there are really two fundamental types of these zooplankton, uh, what he calls the boreal or northern species, which have lipid reserves. They act like, as he says, little bears that they store up a lot of energy uh, in the summer when things are good so that they can uh, effectively hibernate during the winter and live off these these lipid stores. Uh, and that is in contrast to southern copepods, which are don't have those lipid stores and generally are smaller bodied. And we found through uh, many years of work that in years when the water's cooler, you have a lot more of these northern copepods, and it really provides a much uh, more high energy uh, base of the food chain for things like larval fish, which are what juvenile salmon eat. Salmon don't themselves eat copepods. Uh, they eat the things that eat the copepods. And so in cold years, when you have a lot of these cold water copepods that are really lipid rich and generally large bodied, then the salmon do a lot better. They can grow faster and, and growth in the ocean is really key, especially for your little fish, because uh, if you're small, everybody can eat you and it's only through growing larger and larger that then you can really escape a lot of size selective predation. Yeah. Um, and you are involved in, in direct work in surveying uh what's going on with these as well, right? Yeah. So we go out and we have uh, surveys every spring when salmon first get out to the ocean, uh, understand what's going on as well as uh, about a month later to kind of see how they're doing. And our, our results have really been really instrumental in understanding kind of this mechanism of, of what is a good year, what is a bad year uh, for salmon. Another, another kind of byproduct of when the water's warmer, then we tend to get warm water species coming into our area. So our survey goes from Newport, Oregon, all the way up to Cape Flattery, the very northwest tip of Washington. And in warm years, we tend to get uh, things like hake, which normally come up here during the summer. They they're, spend their winters in California. They come up in the summer, but they tend to come up earlier when the water's warm. And, we, and sometimes they remain up here all winter long. We also get things like mackerel. Uh, these are both hake and mackerel are predatory fishes. Uh, they will eat juvenile salmon if they happen to overlap. And so it's kind of this really critical window of whether the salmon are still here uh, and have these southern predators arrived or not. And we think that actually in 2017, uh, there may have been a big predation event um, that that affected salmon returns this year in 2019, which is when the first the Chinook salmon that were affected by this predation event in 17 are starting to return. So it kind of at, at all levels of the food web, the, whether it's warm or cold, it really uh, affects kind of pressures up high and low and sideways. Right. Um, I heard a presentation uh, from Brian Burke uh, to the Orca Task Force where he was uh, speaking about a certain type of zooplankton, uh, the euphosiids, and that they were uh, really declined and badly affected by the blob and hadn't really fully recovered. And they were one of those that you're talking about that has a lot of fat and is an important uh, bottom of the food chain species. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, and it's there's there's a lot of things out there that are that are being affected by it, and some of them are pretty subtle. Uh, we think that you know it's just something as simple as as instead of being at the surface at night, where where a lot of these things come up uh, at night, they come up to the surface during the day, they're down at depth. Uh, and if you have this kind of layer of really warm water at the surface, then they're not going to come all the way to the surface. They come to, you know, within 100 meters of the surface. But if your organism that you're interested in, whether it's a juvenile salmon, or uh, in the case of some of the seabirds that are diving, it's a mismatch. Then they can't, you know, their their prey that's normally there is no longer there. Uh, it, it's just a little bit too deep for them. And so you see things, and we, we've experienced that, uh, big seabird die-offs, just, just fairly subtle changes uh, that have a really big impact on, you know, these these centuries-old patterns of where things are supposed to be uh, in average years that are, that are being blown apart. Yeah, I hear reports of, of southern species being found north that have never been seen before um, in in these waters. And um, I understand these seabird die-offs, when we talk about um, them, we're talking about millions of birds, right? Yeah, yeah, I think cumulatively. I mean, they're they're big enough that they're, they're definitely having population, if not species-level impacts. And there's been seabird die-offs up and down the coast from, you know, Southern California all the way up into Alaska in the last couple of years uh, that they can kind of attribute to uh, either things aren't there and, and seabirds really eat forage fish, which are also what salmon eat. Um, either they're not there at all, or they're kind of in the wrong place uh, so that these traditional feeding grounds aren't, aren't being productive for the seabirds and you, you end up with these uh, die-offs. Seabirds are pretty fragile in the sense that in four or five days without eating anything, they will starve to death. Uh, if you take a salmon and you don't feed it for four or five days, it's not a really a big deal. It's like, whatever, you know, they, they have a lot more energy reserves than seabirds, which are uh, pretty high, high, uh, throughput uh, birds, I should say, they have high metabolic rates. They needed to eat a lot constantly. Yeah, well, I understand this is uh, going along, as you said, all the way um, up and down the coast. And we've seen similar things uh, in Alaska, where, as you said, um, there's been a lot of ice loss, where uh, there's been a mismatch in timing, where uh, you don't have the phytoplankton blooms at the time that they used to happen. And that has trophic effects on the pollock fishery, one of the the largest and and most abundant sources of, of fish in the world. Um, so it's not just salmon that are of concern, but this is happening uh, across some of the the world's best and most historically productive areas for seafood. And and there's it's important to remember too that there are really winners and losers for all of this. So Bristol Bay sockeye salmon, which is the world's largest sockeye run, uh, the last two years, they have had phenomenal returns. Uh, and they think actually that they're eating a lot of larval pollock. Uh, mm-hmm. Sockeye are normally zooplanktivores. They really don't eat fish as a general rule. Even as adults, uh, they really are just focused on on zooplankton. Yet uh, in the Bering Sea and, and even into the Chukchi Sea, starting to get up into the Arctic, there's been so many of these larval pollock and, and people that have been up sampling uh, juvenile sockeye salmon find them just packed full of these larval pollock, and and it's apparently a really good thing. So they've 
I think this past year they had 62 million sockeye return to Bristol Bay. It's uh, it's been phenomenal, and and that's one of the things that's really kind of puzzling a little bit is that there are there are these winners and losers, and and in a lot of cases, it doesn't seem like they should be that different. Uh, for example, I believe it was 2016, uh, we had a dismal run to the of sockeye again to the Fraser River. This is the river that flows through Vancouver, British Columbia. And the exact same year that they had one of the lowest uh, returns ever of Fraser sockeye, the chum salmon return to the Fraser was the highest they'd seen in 20 years. Uh, so whatever chum was were doing was was clearly different than what sockeye were doing, and and it was a good thing. Um, we know that, for example, chum salmon tend to eat a lot of gelatinous organisms, things like tinafores and jellyfish, and and some of these uh, other evolutionary oddities that have a lot of gelatinous stuff. And those species have really uh, done very very well in the last couple of years with this warm water. So perhaps you know they they. We're able to make it on on all these jellyfish that are out there, whereas the sockeye, we we really don't have a good understanding of why why they failed to return. Yeah, well, I we do a lot of work on ocean acidification here at Global Ocean Health, and uh, again, as you're saying, there are, there are winners and losers, and jellyfish are said to be uh, among the winners in that scenario, which uh, which aligns with what you're saying. Um, so understanding what um, Chinook prey is can be difficult. I know uh, that a cruise earlier this year caught only three Chinook, which doesn't provide much of a sample for understanding what they've been eating. Um, what kind of research is underway on Chinook prey habits? We, there's a lot of surveys, uh, both by the U.S. Uh, from basically San Francisco all the way up to uh, Southeast Alaska, uh, where it's primarily federal agencies. So NOAA in the U.S. and then uh, the Department of Fish and Oceans in Canada um, has been sampling juvenile salmon. So we think that there's kind of an, an initial period that's really, really important for overall success, how many adults are going to come back in, in subsequent years. And it's really this first summer in the ocean. And so these studies are really targeting uh, that time period. And that's one of the studies that I work on where we're sampling from Newport all the way up to Cape Flattery. Um, and we're, we're really focused primarily on Columbia River Chinook that are coming out of, of the Columbia River and, and looking at their kind of first month in the ocean. How well are they doing? You know, are they growing quickly? Uh, is it look like they're eating high quality prey, et cetera? And then this, the sampling up in British Columbia and Southeast Alaska are doing essentially the exact same thing. So we have, we can kind of look at this first summer of, of, ocean life to see how are, how are fish doing. And, and a lot of salmon, they come out into the ocean and then they head north and they're moving along the continental shelf. And so these sampling programs can sample them. So for example, most of the Chinook salmon they catch in open waters on the continental shelf in Southeast Alaska actually originate from the Columbia. So we can say, hey, how were they doing You know, when they were just entered the ocean? How are they doing now a couple months later? Uh, so it really allows us to put together uh, the whole series of, of what's going on. The uh, sampling program you talked about, they, they only caught three Chinook, was it actually a, a cruise that I was on, an expedition where we were out on the Gulf of Alaska in winter. So uh, Dick Beamish, who works for Department of Fish and Oceans, or, or used to, he's retired now, um, really 
uh, had this idea that we ought to salmon, study salmon on the high seas in the end of winter because we think that's another critical period that uh, you have to get enough energy in the first summer in the ocean to make it through the first winter in the ocean because this is a time when there isn't very much to eat. And so he raised, I don't know how much money, a lot of money, um, hand-selected a scientific crew and arranged for the charter of a Russian research vessel. And I was one of the people who got to go out. And we spent a month out there, out in the middle of the Gulf of Alaska, a long ways from anywhere, uh, fishing for salmon with a big trawl. Um, and we did only catch three Chinook, but that's actually kind of to be expected because Chinook are the least abundant of any of the Pacific salmon uh, at all. And they also tend to be the deepest uh, in the ocean. They're, they're pretty deep. And we were sampling probably the first, the top 30 or 40 meters of the ocean and Chinook, we think, are probably down at 100 or 200. Uh, so between those two factors, uh, it's not surprising that we only caught three Chinook. I think we caught a total of 421 salmon, most of which were chum and coho and sockeye. But it was really cool because one of the Chinook, we, as a kind of a test case, uh, one of the guys on board who was from Fish and Oceans Canada uh, did some genetic analysis of the Chinook and the coho that we caught while we were while we were out there. And one of the Chinook was actually a Snake River Fall Chinook. Um, so it was very cool to see. Yeah, yeah. The, the, from the Columbia. Yeah. So we're probably a thousand kilometers away. Uh, and there they were. And in fact, we also got coho from the Columbia. We got Oregon Coast coho and we got Washington Coast coho. So that was really, really exciting. And, and one of the chum salmon was from the Washington coast as well. So uh, fish from our local areas are out there uh, using this high seas area for to overwinter. And, and that's really one of the big uh, areas or stages of the marine life cycle that we really know the least about is what happens in the winter. Where where do they go even as a starting place? And that's why uh, it's so exciting now with genetics with salmon that you can go and get a fish anywhere in the ocean and we can tell we can tell you where it's from. Uh, whether it's a Japanese uh, chum salmon from Hokkaido uh, or Bristol Bay sockeye or uh, in this case a Columbia River hatchery uh, fish, you can tell genetically, uh, which is really, really powerful stuff. Yeah, that's changing the game. That's very cool. I know that um, historically, diet studies have been somewhat sparse and were often reliant on stomach samples that were taken decades ago. Um, but as the ocean changes so much, uh, these findings might no longer be good predictors of what fish are eating. So uh, it's good to hear that so much effort is being put into understanding what's happening now and what they're eating now. Yes, yes. And it's and it's really critical to, uh, you know, I explain to people, everybody's like, oh, you know, like, for example, this expedition we did last winter, uh, everybody's like, oh, is that, you know, is that normal? And it's like, we have no idea what's normal, you know, that you really need these long term time series to determine what is normal. Uh, the analogy I always use is if you had never been to New York City and you went there on New Year's Eve, you would probably have a very different impression of what New York City is all about than if you were to go there on, say, you know, a Saturday, any Saturday night in November. Uh, it's going to seem very, very different. And and that's really the, the challenge with uh, climate change and, and, you know, habitats and, and ecosystems that are really changing is, did we understand what it used to look like? Because we can't really understand what it's going to look like or it's it's starting to look like unless we have that hindsight. Mm -hmm. 
you need a good baseline in order to understand anything at all. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, um, do you think that there are other factors that are compounding the warming of the ocean, such as hypoxia, uh, you know, lack of oxygen and ocean acidification, as I mentioned earlier? Yeah, no, definitely. The, uh, you know, the hypoxia, um, is primarily a problem for benthic species. So uh, crabs, as we talked about, clams, uh, a lot of our ground fish that we consume, including pollock, which goes into fish fillets, uh, and uh, other species, lingcod that people like to eat, et cetera, those are the ones that are really going to get hit by hypoxia the hardest because it's down on the bottom of the ocean. It's not up in the water column. There's enough phytoplankton, these are uh, single-celled plants, basically, of the ocean that are producing uh, oxygen, as well as you're getting some oxygen coming in from from the sea surface, so that the kind of what we call the pelagic zone, or the things that are up in the water column, really don't have that much of a problem with hypoxia. But the acidification is huge, obviously, because uh, organisms that have calcium carbonate shells, things like pteropods, and, and perhaps to a lesser degree, but still, as far as we can tell, being affected are, are things that have cartilaginous skeletons. So all the crustaceans, um, these zooplankton that I was talking about that salmon don't eat, but they eat the things that eat the zooplankton, um, those are being affected by uh, acidification. And so we don't think that salmon necessarily are going to be directly affected in, in huge uh, ways by acidification. Uh, you think of a salmon, it has a, it, or any fish, they, they're pretty well armored. Uh, they have all these scales, they have this nice mucus layer, you know, they're, they're pretty limited to what is exposed to the outside world, a lot like our own skin is. Um, we, can, we can guard a lot of stuff, but when their prey or the prey of their prey are being impacted, which we know um, should, should be happening and is starting to happen, uh, then the whole food web gets screwed up and then they, they, it, we're not very good at predicting what food webs of the future are going to look like, but we think that uh, pretty major parts of it are going to be impacted, and those are probably parts that are important for salmon and, and other fishes. Yeah, well, and there's been some research at um, the University of Washington that uh, Chase Williams reported on uh, to the ORCA task force about uh, salmon uh, sense of smell uh, being affected by ocean acidification. So um, when a salmon's skin is torn, a hormone is released and that alerts others in the area that, uh, you know, a fish is injured and that a predator is likely around and they should avoid it. But when they are exposed to uh, elevated CO2 uh, in high acidified water, they became less sensitive to those uh, alarm odors and um, would instead actually go towards what they would understand to be a predator instead of away from it. And I've also seen some studies that uh, that indicate that in pink salmon, perhaps, um, they may lose their ability uh, to navigate back to their natal stream uh, under acidified conditions of the future. That's a huge deal. I mean, it, 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 I've studied salmon for a long time and it never ceased to amaze me that they can find their way home. And we know they find their way home because the, genetically each population is distinct. They don't intermix, they don't stray, or they stray a little tiny bit, but they really know where they are and where they need to go. And, and I go down, you know, I live on the Oregon coast. I go down and I, for our local stream, uh, 
and there's a run of, you know, a thousand coho that normally come into that. And you look at this little stream that I can walk across in, you know, knee high rubber boots without getting my feet wet. And you look at the ocean and think these guys know, they know where the opening is and then they can smell it and come in. And so uh, not being able to smell it, not being able to recognize that that is home, that's where you need to go, uh, potentially is really big implications for what we think is local, local adaptation uh, to these streams. So yeah, there's there's huge concerns. And, and it, as you said, that's a, a huge area of interest that we're just starting to understand uh, kind of these subtle behavioral differences that might be affecting salmon uh, directly. But certainly the, the prey is, is a huge one. It, it doesn't really matter if you can't find your way home if you, you've already starved to death. Yes, we know that's happening now. With some copepods, we're seeing uh, dissolving of the shell in, in over a third of the population off our coast. Um, so it's definitely something uh, that that is of concern right now, whereas some of this uh, sensory behavior is is what we can expect to come in future decades. Um, going back to hypoxia, um, our director, Brad Warren, uh, said that some recent work from the Department of Fish and Oceans Canada uh, has shown that a hypoxic layer is rising across the North Pacific Basin from the deep ocean at a rate of about a meter a year, and that it's thought to be eroding deep water habitat of some ground fish. And given that Chinook, Coho, and Sockeye uh, often seem to target a very deep water squid, uh, is there any work underway on the capacity of the squid species to deal with those changing conditions at depth? Yeah, not that I know of. They've, they're probably using uh, more shallow water squid as analogs. Uh, so the deep water squid, we, when I was out on this expedition in the Gulf of Alaska, we were catching a lot of squid at night. Um, and these are the ones that the salmon are feeding on. I mean, we were, we were looking at stomachs of salmon while we were out there as well and, and seeing them in there. And they know very, very little about, I mean, the people have basically named them as species, but, uh, anything about their biology is really extremely limited. And it, you know, you can't really raise them in aquarium very easily, just even getting them from these high seas habitats. These, these guys stay a long ways from shore, uh, trying to get samples, bring them back to the lab, trying to do experiments, et cetera. It's really, really tough. Um, so that's, that's a really big unknown. And I think you can use, hopefully get information from coastal species uh, try and see what what the effects are, and and a lot of the work that's being done. Uh, I know the Alaska Fishery Science Center does a lot of this stuff where they're uh, looking at the effects of acidification as well as changing temperatures, and it's it's really the eggs and the larvae because we think those are the most sensitive stages that are most likely to be impacted by these things. They're tiny, you know, the surface area to volume ratios are really small, um, and they're that's an, a time of life when when they're very uh, fragile. They need to, you know, immediately start eating. If there's not the right food, the right size, uh, they they die basically. Um, so uh, it's it's tough to do that with high seas species of squid that we barely understand uh, what species is which, uh, and and in fact are finding new species out there. Um, so it, you really have to start with something that you is is tenable that you can work with, like coastal species. So is there an indication that, that maybe Chinook migration timing and spatial distribution are, are shifting in response to all these major changes? Um, I know you've worked uh, looking at coded wired tags to 
um, understand distribution of Chinook off the West Coast. Can you tell our audience what coded wire tagging is and, and what you think or what you've seen happening as far as uh, migration? So the cutter wire tag system is uh, a system, cutter wire tags are these tiny little pieces of metal that have a code, a number etched on the side, and they're inserted into the nasal cartridge or the nose of young salmon, typically before they leave the hatchery, but there's also uh, wild tagging programs. And and the idea with this is that you can go out and catch a salmon in a fishery or that's returning to spawn to a hatchery or out in the wild and look at the code and you can tell where that fish came from. And this is the world's largest tagging program. So about 50 million coded wire tagged fish are released. Salmon, primarily Chinook and Coho, are released every year from California all the way up to Alaska. And the Managers use this as their primary management tool so they can tell who's catching whose fish, uh, what survival rates are, what harvest rates are, et cetera, all the things that you need to have sound salmon management. Uh, and uh, as far as evidence of whether the, there have been changes in the distribution of fish, generally we haven't seen uh, really big changes. There's, there's occasionally from year to year, you know, one year they'll come in late, the other years they come in a little bit early, uh, but not anything too systematic. One of the issues, though, is that the salmon fisheries are really set up to uh, fish for fish in places where traditionally salmon are present. So there's not a lot of fishing effort in other areas uh, where salmon might uh, have gone if they're changing their distributions. So it's really tricky, actually, to kind of figure out, okay, are these guys changing where they're going or not outside of the the normal areas where people have salmon fisheries. One place we are seeing a real change in distribution, though, is up in the Arctic, uh, places like the McKinsey River, uh, where they're suddenly getting a lot more pink and chum salmon uh, into these systems, streams, uh, especially streams that didn't have any uh, anadromous salmon before. Now they're starting to see more and more of them. Uh, so in that case, there's there's definitely been a big change in the distribution of fish. Thanks. And how many salmon are uh, tagged with these coated wire so it's about 50 million fish every year, and primarily Chinook and Coho. Uh, these these tags cost about five cents each, so it's relatively cheap to put them in and insert them into the, the nose. The, pro, uh, the, the work comes when you have to pull them back out again. You have to kill the fish, which uh, usually we kill fish before we eat them, um, and then get, it, get the tag out, and then you visually read off the tag code. So it takes a little while to... Get it, find it in this nasal chunk of nasal cartridge, and uh, put it under uh, a viewing scope so that you can actually read off the tag code, and then query the database and figure out where it came from, and et cetera. Wow. Yes. Um, so I know that eDNA is starting to change a lot of things, um, and uh, that it might have some. Uh, some potential in research tools and methods for the kind of food web studies that we've been talking about. Uh, The old school reliance was on stomach sampling that was spotty, costly to collect, to store, and to analyze. Um, What headway is is going on and and what is eDNA? Yeah, so eDNA, if you think about it, Anything that's water, and, and I guess the same is true in air, but I don't really know anything about terrestrial systems. But if you put a fish in the water, it gives off DNA. Uh, fish have slime on them. They, you know, they poop in the water, et cetera. And all these different ways you can get DNA from that fish in the water. So the idea of eDNA, and the E stands for environmental, is that you just go through, you get a water sample, and then you filter it with a super fine uh, sample that will pick up any DNA 
that's in there. And then you go through and process the DNA, you amplify it like you normally would, and then you query it. And so you take known uh, sequences of DNA for species that you're interested in, and you say, are these sequences in this eDNA that we found? found? And so that you can tell, you know, what is what was in that water, what had, what had shed DNA into the water. There's some really cool um, uses of that. So I've been looking at lamprey off the coast here. And one of the big questions we have is what is the distribution of lamprey? So Pacific lamprey are anadromous. They spend part of their life out in the ocean, just like salmon do. And we know very, very little about it. And uh, one of the big questions is where where are they? Where do they go? And so the one of our surveys, the NOAA surveys that goes from, it was actually the Hake survey, it goes from basically Monterey Bay all the way up to the Queen Charlotte Islands or Haida Gwaii, as they're now known. Uh, they took thousands of water samples. And I said, hey, can you check and tell me which of these samples have Pacific lamprey DNA in them? And so that's what they're doing. They're, they're mainly using it for their purposes, but it's like, just throw these primers in there. Tell me if there's any lamprey. And it's really, really cool. I haven't gotten any results yet, but uh, it will be very, very exciting to see, uh, you know, where where is shed DNA from lamprey. Uh, another good example is this expedition I was on out in the Gulf of Alaska. One of the really surprising things is that we didn't catch any potential salmon predators or very few. We got a couple dogfish, but I thought for sure there would be salmon sharks out there. Salmon sharks are big. They eat salmon. We didn't catch a single one. Um, again, they were collecting water samples for eDNA. So it'd be super interesting to see, was there shed DNA from salmon sharks. And for whatever reason, the, the, the net we were using, I thought was pretty short. And so potentially, you know, a salmon shark could get in, feel the pressure wave of the net and just swim right out. Um, so the question is, did that happen? And it's through eDNA that we'll be able to say yes or no, there were salmon sharks there. So it's very, very cool. Uh, as well as anything else that was in the water, you know, apparently seabirds leave a lot of eDNA because they poop in the water, uh, marine mammals, other fish that we didn't catch. Etc. So it's it's really really exciting. Uh, one of the uh, caveats, it, though, is that you have to know what you're looking for, right? So you have to have the genetic sequences of the species you're interested in, um, and a lot of times that is kind of limited. People have been making huge efforts uh, to try and get DNA from everything on Earth, all species that we know about, but that's uh, obviously a, a enormous task, and and there's a lot of things that we just don't have samples for yet. So you can't query it. You have to, you have to know what you're looking for to look for it. Well, that is very exciting. And, and I did read a recent paper that indicated that we might be losing a lot more Chinook to salmon sharks than we previously thought. So. Yes. Yes. No, that's really, really exciting. Yeah. It's not exciting for the, the salmon, but it's interesting. <laughs> to be able to, be know, able to know, yeah, yeah, if they were there without having caught one, that's that's yeah. pretty darn yeah. cool, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so have you done uh, any work specifically on the link to Southern Resident Killer Whales? Um, so I was working with that in the early years uh, when they first were petitioned for listing in uh, providing information on what stocks of salmon I thought uh, they were most likely to encounter as they moved up and down the coast. So whether they're down in California, uh, off the you know Central California coast in winter, which is where they tend to go, where there's a lot of Central Valley Chinook and Klamath Chinook down there, uh, or if they move all the way up to Haida Gwaii uh, in the spring, where you've got a much, much wider diversity of salmon that we believe are up there uh, based on these coder wire tag uh, 
patterns that, that I've been playing around with. Cool. Um, well, thanks for all of this. And um, I guess I just want to emphasize that all of these things that we're seeing uh, happen uh, in the ocean and on land as well, as far as uh, warming, as well as uh, decreasing oxygen levels uh, and acidification are a result of uh, carbon emissions heating up our atmosphere and changing um, the way our climate works. And um so do you have any advice for people about how they can be involved in uh, trying to ensure a future for our beloved uh, Chinook and other salmon and iconic species like the orca? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think it's really important to be conscious of your carbon footprint. Um, you know, the, the ways we spend a lot of energy are driving, flying, uh, heating or cooling your house and, and being conscious of that and trying to minimize uh, your your impact there. Uh, I think probably most importantly right now is to vote for elected officials who take climate change seriously, because I, I think we really need some pretty heavy handed top down approaches uh, to climate change. The, it's great that individuals make changes, but until we as a country uh, really start making substantial changes, uh, not much is going to happen. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Well, thank you again so much for sharing uh, all the exciting work that you're doing. And uh, I hope you get to continue uh, with all these great surveys and cruises. Yes. Thank you very much. We are we are going back out in the Gulf of Alaska in 2021. So uh, gearing up already for Great. it to go go see what's out there again. Yes. Very cool. And um, are you going to seek funding for years after that as well? Uh, it's not clear uh, what happens. Yeah. So this is kind of one one bite off one chunk at a time. Uh, and there's there's right. And see what, you see find what we find well, and how right? much it costs. And, and uh, you know, we really lucked out this last trip that the weather was just phenomenal. So we could do a lot. And it may be that we get out there this next time and we just get hammered the whole time. and We can't get anything done. So um, that's kind of the risk of being out in the Gulf of Alaska in late winter is uh, it's not necessarily a great time to be out there, especially in a ship. Yes, but we'll try. Thank you, Julia. That was Julia Sanders interviewing NOAA scientist Lori Whitecamp. Thanks to all of you for listening. On behalf of the crew at Global Ocean Health, we're proud to bring you this episode of the Changing Waters podcast. Stay tuned for more on the ways a changing ocean food web affects salmon, whales, and people, and what we can do about it.